0: What's up? Hope you guys are having a great day today. My name is Matthew Spazitti, and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazitti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are joining me for the first time today, I'd like to ask you to do a really quick thing for me Uh, two things. First and foremost, if you're liking this podcast, if you're liking what you're hearing, then go leave me a rating and review on iTunes so that we can help get the show on the map and we can get the show to be more visible. It's a really great way to support the show if you guys are really liking what I'm doing here and it really, really really, really helps because what it does is it gets you on the rankings on iTunes and that gets you more visible to more than just the people that are on social media. And It's very, very, very helpful. So if you guys love what I'm doing here, then go do that. And also, one more thing, if you love the show, then consider taking the 10-episode challenge, which is pretty self-explanatory, you know, all you got to do is you got to go back and listen to the last 10 episodes of the show, it's really, really great, if you want to do more than, hey, the more the merrier, so I just, the reason I ask you guys to do this is because I feel like there's a lot of value in those last 10 episodes, and, and of course more in the past episodes in general, you know, you guys are going to be aware of terminologies that we're talking about here, I mean, I might be referencing things that I talked about in the last couple episodes you guys may not be aware of, maybe I defined a term that you guys won't be aware of, we don't talk about news in a vacuum okay? We don't do that. We don't talk about politics and news and economics and stuff. We don't talk about it in a vacuum here. So, it's really important that you guys make sure that you're aware of the things that we're talking about. And the best way is to go back and, you know, listen to the last 10 episodes. And I just feel like there's a wealth of knowledge back there that you guys are, unfortunately, you're going to lose out on if you don't go back and, and... and listen to the last 10 episodes. So if you want to get the most out of the show, then consider taking the 10-episode challenge. All right. So today, I want to talk about the stimulus checks. You know, I, I just received mine not that long ago. I'm sure you guys are receiving yours as well. You know, it turns out it wasn't the $2,000 stimulus checks that Donald Trump was talking about, but we are going to read an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. It was written by. Brad Palumbo and Peter Jacobson, and it's it's a really, really great article, but it does talk about the push for the $2,000 stimulus checks. It talks about a lot of the the three glaring flaws and whatnot and all that kind of stuff, and then we're going to hop over to the Mises Institute, and we're going to read an article that was written by Ryan McMakin. I've read tons of articles by Ryan McMakin before. I absolutely love him. He's a great author. He's a great guy, and and, and this article basically, the, the title of it is that Larry Summers reminds us that federal 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 stimulus, quote-unquote, mostly exists to help Wall Street, not everyday people. It's a really, really, really good idea for you guys to be aware of, and I, th- I feel like both of these articles make very, very excellent points that I think you guys should, should be ultimately aware of and whatnot, and yeah, I know I, lead, I read a lot of articles on the show. First and foremost, this is what I do. When I'm not on the show, you know, I'm, and I'm not spending time with my family, I'm not taking care of my daughter, spending time with my lovely wife, you know, when I'm not doing that kind of stuff. I'm usually reading articles, that's most of the time what I'm doing, it's just, it's very easy for me to do, right, you, you get on your phone, you get on your iPad, your computer, you know, I, it's actually, I love reading them so much, I get distracted from actually doing real work that I gotta get done, like recording a podcast episode, or figuring out what the heck I wanna talk about today, or, I mean, a lot of times, it may come across this way, and I don't know, maybe you guys are like this or not, I do sort of plan out what I wanna talk about, but sometimes. But a lot of times, I just sit down on my computer and I'm like, what do I want to talk about today? You know, I've got so many things rolling around in my head, so many different topics I want to cover. Like today, I was reading an article on The Great Reset, okay? And the article was written by Ryan Rechtenwald. He did a three-part series of the Great Reset, which actually next week we're going to do. We're going to talk about the the three different articles. We'll probably do all three in one sitting, so in one in one actual podcast episode. But it's really, really great stuff. It's really good stuff, and it really describes, I think, the direction. Whether you agree with the great the Great Reset or not, whether you agree with everything that you've heard about it or not, if you, I've actually done an episode. Understanding the Great Reset, and that, the, and I think I did another one. I, well, I know I did another one. I think it was titled, You know, the, the Great Reset is Nothing New. Basically, there have always been authoritarians, there have always been individuals in the world who ultimately wanted to bring the world under one banner so they could ultimately control it all. And it really, they want to form of central planning, kind of socialistic, kind of communistic type of stuff. Now, socialism and communism. Really are quite, while they haven't been around for forever, at least they haven't been around for forever in name, but the overall idea of sharing in each other's. Wealth and, and means of production, the idea of central planning, that kind of stuff, whether it had a name or not, has been around since the dawn of time. Really, has it, this is not something that's new to the modern world? Centralizing control, you know, wanting to share in the production of everybody's wealth. Right, there have been small communities over the years that shared in each other's wealth. They shared. Now, they didn't share everything. But they shared a lot. They, maybe they even shared the vast, the majority of what they had. But that was in a small community that was really made up of, of a culturally homogenous group of people, right? They all believed in very similar things. May, may, have, may have even been family or relatives or very, very close friends. you know. So that kind of stuff has been existing since the dawn of time. And it works, or at least when you're talking about socialism the way that most people think about it. Most people think about socialism with regards to centralizing the, the means of production and ultimately sharing in all the, the products of our labor. And the idea goes that that way, you know, those who don't have a lot and who struggle, they can still live a decent life with dignity. And those who have a lot can, I guess, feel good for helping out their fellow neighbor or something of that nature. So that's kind of the idea. Because when you think about socialism today, when you hear anybody talk about it, it's all about wealth redistribution. Right? redistributing the product of our labor. Now, if this is voluntary, I actually have no problem with it as long as the socialism in which the socialism again I'm going to define it socialism the way that we think about it today or at least the way it's popularly thought about which is the redistribution of wealth the redistribution of the product of of our labor that is how most people think about socialism I'm okay with that as long as it's voluntary I'm not okay with it with people redistributing my wealth and the product of my labor if I want to do it that's called charity That's not, you know, but if a group of people want to get together and they want to voluntarily do it, I'm okay with that. I got no problem with it whatsoever. If they want to engage in a pseudo-socialistic type of community, then that's fine with me as long as it's voluntary because that's the only way it's going to work. Because you're going to get individuals like me who, no, I don't want to give money to the lazy bum who now is in dire straits because they never planned. They're in dire straits because they dug their head in the sand. They're in dire straits because of their own poor decisions that they've made in their life. I don't want to help that person. I don't want to help them. If I decided to help them, I wouldn't help them by giving them money. Let's say it was a personal friend of mine. Let's say it's someone that I knew, maybe a family member. I would never help them by giving them the product of my labor in terms of money. What I would do is I would give them education. I would reshape the way they're thinking, or at least I would attempt to do that. I would reshape and open their eye, their mind and open their eyes. That's what I would do. Because you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, right? Biblical principle. You teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, you you give him a fish, you only feed him for a day. And I did that backwards. It's really, you say it the other way around. You give a man a fish, you feed him for a day you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. That's the motto. That's the idea. That's actually one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. I know I have a ton, there's tons of reasons why I'm doing it. I want to make money, right? I want to become an entrepreneur and, and, you know, and ultimately create mobile income and control the source of my income. You know, I mean, hey, I do not shy away from the fact that yes, part of the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to make money. Of course, that's why almost everyone, as far as I'm aware, Maybe there are some people out there who are just doing a podcast because they just love it and it's a pet project for them and they just want to, you know, it's more of a, I don't know, a charity? They're just giving their time because they enjoy it. It's a hobby for them. Maybe they really like it. They're getting value out of it that is non-monetary. Maybe that there are some people out there. But I would not ever be shocked to find out that maybe while they didn't start it because they wanted to make money, they eventually started making money one way or the other. But I have a tendency to think that the vast majority of people who are doing podcasting, blogging, they're trying to make money. Everyone's trying to take control of the source of their income. And you know what? We should be applauding that. Even if these people are far right wingers or far left wingers and we just don't disagree with them vehemently, maybe they're full on communist, socialist. We should be in favor of everybody wanting to take control of the source of their income because their lives are going to be heavily improved by doing so. And when, if, if most people did this, I think, look, you would get out of the boot and the heel of the corporate socialists, which is what's actually happening today. And again, we'll cover that next week when we talk about the Great Reset. There's another one that, said, that talks about corporate socialism where basically the corporations are allowed to have monopolistic control, or almost monopolistic control, and they basically become the arm of the government. I've talked about this many times in, in, I don't even remember which other episode, but it was way back in in the archives, right? And basically I talked about how, I asked the question, And I I took the position of could large corporations ever become large without the power that government gives them, without the advantage that government gives them with regards to getting more market share and keeping competition out of the market. And I, I postulated that if you really want to hurt big corporations and you want to take away their corrupt control of a market, of their industry, the best way to do that is to punish them with competition punish them heavily with heavy competition, add in more rungs in the ladder, make it easier for people to come in and create businesses, and do not allow them to have any special privileges. They have to compete on the markets just like everyone else does. And you know who has more control in that environment? The consumer, you and me. We do. We control the, the allocation of resources. Whereas in a... Central planning society, like, you know, communistic, socialistic societies or fascists or whatever, central planning, they are the owners of the resources and they allocate them. They always do it poorly because there's so much information, there's a lack of knowledge. Frederick Hayek talked about this all the time. Frederick Hayek always talked about how there's a lack of information. They got the information problem. But even if you didn't have the lack of information and you knew everything, let's say you, you it's all down to a computer system... I still say that there's the human nature flaw, and every computer system is, is developed and is ultimately created by humans, therefore the human nature flaw is in absolutely every single thing we create. You cannot get away from it. There's a lot of people who think this way when it comes to trading. Okay, I'm going to relate it to my my experience and my knowledge in the Forex markets. You know, there's a lot of people out there who want to create a system, a automated trading system because they want to take their emotions and their imperfections out of their trading. But the fact of the matter is that the way the computer systems behave is created by the imperfect individual. So the system that they create is just as imperfect as they are even if the computer had the ability to have its own brain right with artificial intelligence movies have shown this time and time again the imperfection of humanity finds its way into those systems even if you create an a synthetic mind through artificial intelligence if you're thinking of you know, uh, you know science fiction novels or movies and things of that nature you know if you're thinking along those lines, The artificial intelligence is imperfect in the way that it thinks, and it always causes issues. The artificial intelligence turns out to be just as bad as normal people. It rationalizes in imperfect ways, just like everyday human beings. So no, even if you had the ability to collect all the knowledge in the world, and let's say all the resources and and the allocation of those resources was controlled by a computer that had all knowledge... It still would never work because there is the man's imperfect nature. It's the human condition, ladies and gentlemen. That's just the fact. It's the human condition, okay? There there is nothing that can really be done about it. We are sinful creatures. And as a result of whether you agree with me that we are uh, sinful creatures, whether you agree with Christianity or not is irrelevant. But the fact of the matter is that's that's what I believe. So and this is my show. So I'm going to say it and I'm not going to apologize for it because this is my show. You don't like it. You can go somewhere else. There's tons of other shows you listen to. You don't have to listen to me. If you are enraged that much about it, then, you know, I don't want you here. I really don't. You know, I'm not going to be apologetic about it. If you're if you're enraged and you're angered by the things that I'm saying, then this is not the place for you. Uh, while I very much appreciate you t- spending time with me, I think your time would be better spent going somewhere else. So, but anyways, I digress. The point of what I'm trying to make is that even if you're not a Christian, even non-Christian individuals believe that man is not perfect. Humanity is not perfect. There are flaws in human nature. Perfection is not long for this world. And therefore, everything that humanity touches is going to be imperfect. It's going to have flaws. It's going to have a chink in the armor, if you will. And as a result of that, there isn't anything that you can create to take that away. It is the human condition. There will always be flaws. And you could try to account for the flaws, but you know, there'll always be flaws. Now, one of the best parts of humanity is we can adapt and we can change the way we behave. But this is why you can't ever get rid of problems, right? You try to fix a problem and then you create 10 other problems, Maybe that's over-exaggeration, but there's always going to be problems. You cannot fully fix problems, even if you try to attempt to fix a problem. And we're not just talking about economics. We're talking about anything when when it comes to this. But anyways, look, we have gone way, way off topic. And I thought about dividing this episode as a result of me going off topic here. But I decided to go ahead and keep it because, really, I do think it ties well into what I'm talking about. You know, we're talking about, you know, stimulus checks that were created because of due to lockdowns. You see, you took one set of problems, you thought that the COVID-19 was a serious issue, you turned around, and you decided to lock everything down. Well, you created a whole series of other problems, right? You attempted to engage in central planning, you saw a series of problems, and you attempted to fix them, and arguably, and I would, and I certainly hold this, that the problems you caused were far worse than the problems that existed before. The problems that were there before, in my opinion, were not really problems much at all. They, I mean, the virus doesn't even kill the vast majority of people it comes in contact with. The vast majority of people who get it, and I've known a lot of people in my life who've gotten it, and they've been perfectly fine. No problems whatsoever. Some of them, they were knocked off their feet for maybe a couple days, maybe a week, but no worse than the flu. And then some of them barely had any symptoms at all. They were very mild. No problems whatsoever and I've known quite a few people in my life who've gotten it. Not a problem. And and many of them were old, people who were supposedly, quote unquote, at risk and perfectly fine. Not an issue. This is a non-issue. But either way, the perceived risk was there. And even though the risk wasn't actually real, okay, for the vast majority of people, the perceived risk was there. They took action, which i believe had nothing to do with the virus. It really had more to do with politics, you know, power, control and ultimately lining the pockets of of businesses, which we will end up getting into in these articles. It had nothing to do with wanting to protect you and me. It's never about us. They say it's always about us. It's really not. It's always about them and them getting their power, their control, getting their money and all that kind of stuff, and that's that's ultimately what it's about. It's what every crisis, whether the crisis was natural or not, is always used to further their agenda and nothing else. It's not used to help us. They are not our parents. They are not our paternal guardians. No, 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 no. They don't care about you. They're not there to ensure that you have an income. And if they give you an income, it is only to shut you up. The real reasons for why they behave the way they do is to advance their own self-interest, is to get their own pockets lined, to get more authority, more power, more control. That's the real reason behind it. But, you know, but still, there was all this perceived, at least in the public eye, there was a perceived risk. They tried to fix it, and they caused more problems. You don't get to fix the problems. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't try to fix some problems. But when you try to fix some problems, and you are successful or semi-successful, you tend to create others. Now, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't try to improve, ladies and gentlemen. That's not what I'm trying to say. Okay? I mean, if you take control of the source of your income today, you shifted the issues. You now no longer are beholden to a, co- a corporation. Now you're no longer beholden to somebody else for your, your, your livelihood. You know, you're not really beholden to them anymore. But now you have to constantly, you probably have to work harder. You might. You might have to spend more time working. You have to toil and you have to learn more. You don't quite have the support network that you once had. There are other problems that you create when you take control of the source of your income maybe you have to work so hard that maybe your family is suffering and whereas before your family didn't suffer so maybe you need to find a way to do both where you could still work on your stuff but now your family's not not suffering anymore you know due to your absence you never really truly fix all the problems you just kind of shift the problems and it's really more of a preference do i prefer to have these issues or do i prefer to have these issues right in that, and, and that's the ultimate question that we have to ask. But anyways, let's go ahead and hop into these articles real quick. But hey, before we do, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not really going to do a pitch for all of the affiliate programs that I have for today because we're we're really, really into the show here and I haven't even talked about ultimately what, I'm, what I wanted to talk about. I will tie it in, I promise, but we did get off on some tangents, I admit. But here's the one thing I want to promote. I'm starting the Liberty Informant, which is a subscription service that I'm starting. It's going to be through MeWe.com, and the main reason I'm choosing MeWe is, for those of you who don't know, MeWe is an alternative website to Facebook, and it's a really, really great social media platform, and I really, really like it a lot, and that's where ultimately the group is going to be. It's going to be a private group, and you're going to need to subscribe. It's going to cost money, okay? It's not going to be free, in order to gain access to the group, and that's where I'm going to be posting the content from the Liberty Informant. Now, here's the thing. Before, I was, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I was actually going to use Locals.com, I decided against that because Locals.com actually limits the amount of content that you can upload if it's over a certain amount of megabytes, and you can only do, like, I think 10 a day, which isn't an issue for the podcast because I only do two podcasts a week. But that is a problem with regards to Liberty Informant because I was planning on doing a lot more than simply two a week. So I I decided that I needed somewhere where I'm not going to be limited to how much content I upload and things of that nature. So MeWe seems like it's going to fit the bill pretty well. So, but here's the problem. I got to create a landing page. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to create a landing page with a payment portal so that we can go ahead and get people into that group and whatnot. When I'm done with that, I will go ahead and let you guys know so that you guys can go ahead and start getting involved and join the group and get involved in Liberty Informant. And I think it'll be pretty cool. So, but what is Liberty Informant? The Liberty Informant is where I'm going to be posting articles that I'm going to be reading from the Foundation for Economic Education, the Mises Institute, and the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm not going to be, giving my opinions. I'm just going to be reading the articles, turning it into, uh, into an audio format so that you guys have access to it whenever you want, and you guys can listen to it in audio format when you're driving to work, you're maybe you're eating lunch, maybe you're right, going right before you go to bed. Those are usually the most popular times when I like to listen to stuff. Putting it in audio format gives you guys the ability to consume the information to continue to increase your knowledge without having to read the content. But look, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people out there who don't have the time to go off and read all these articles that get published every single day they simply and merely do not have that time. So they need someone to come in and they need someone to turn the content into a more accessible medium so they can listen to it and they can still engage in it. So that's the idea is that there's so many people who want to read this stuff simply do not possess the time to do it. So my goal is to come and turn in audio files for you and then give you the ability to listen to it whenever you have time. And that's going to be very valuable for a lot of people. All right, let's go ahead and get into the first article here. The three Three glaring flaws plaguing the bipartisan push for $2,000 stimulus checks written by Brad Palumbo and Peter Jacobson at the Foundation for Economic Education. This was written, let's see, it was written on on Friday, January 1st, 2021, so two days ago. When politicians from completely opposite sides of the ideological spectrum agree on something, it's usually a really good idea or a really bad one. The latest example of this phenomenon is the bipartisan push in Congress for upping the recent round of COVID-19 stimulus checks from $600 to $2,000. Yeah, typically if there is unison in it, it's usually a bad idea. You don't want it. You don't want to touch it. It's toxic. And anyways, Though President Trump was the first one to call for this move, it has since been backed by Republican lawmakers such as Senator Josh Hawley and progressive Democrats like Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Let's do it at Rashida Tlaib. And I already co-wrote the COVID amendment for $2,000 checks, so it's ready to go. Glad to see the president is willing to support our legislation. We can pass $2,000 checks this week if the Senate GOP agrees to stand down. That was by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. At Real Donald Trump is right. Workers deserve much more than $600, as I have repeatedly said and fought for, and there's obviously plenty of money to do it. Look at what Congress threw away on corporate giveaways and foreign buyouts. Let's get it done. That was Josh Hawley. These are Twitter posts. That's why they sound kind of weird. Anyways, legislation passed by House Democrats would send most American adults $2,000 checks with the amount phasing out at higher income thresholds. It would also send households $2,000 per child slash dependent. Trump's similar proposal would send $2,000 to adults and $600 per child. This partisan coalition of legislatures may have good intentions, but that does little to ameliorate the serious flaws with their proposal. Here are three key reasons that handing out boosted COVID stimulus checks, like candy on Halloween, isn't effective or justified. Number one, bigger checks won't stimulate the economy. The first problem with this proposal is that despite its stated justification, adding money to many Americans' bank accounts won't stimulate the economy in any meaningful way. Why? Well, the claim that government checks can boost the economy is based on the notion that economic growth can be created by people spending more money. The narrative goes like this, if people spend more money, overall income will go up, which means more people will get jobs. This might sound plausible if you stop thinking about it there, but remember, the money for the checks had to come from somewhere, as famed economist Henry Hazlitt put it, either immediately or ultimately, every dollar of government spending must be raised through a dollar of taxation. Once we look at the matter in this way, the supposed miracles of government spending will appear in another light. When government takes money out of Bob's wallet to pay Paul, the analysis doesn't end with what Paul buys in stimulated spending. Surely, Bob was planning on using his money in some way. Maybe he had intended to spend the money on something else. Maybe he planned to put it in a savings account for a bank to loan out for a long-term investment. Either way, Bob loses an opportunity that he valued more than giving it away. This lost opportunity is known as opportunity cost. These opportunity costs are based on an individual's subjective values, and as such, the government has no good way of measuring them. It's important to understand that economic growth does not occur due to people getting more zeros in their bank accounts. Fundamentally, economic growth comes from producing more of what people want, thus randomly sending out taxpayer finance checks won't truly stimulate the economy because the real problem is the fact that production has been stifled by COVID-19 and cumbersome shutdown orders. You can't stimulate an economy that is locked down, or as Elon Musk put it, if you don't make stuff, there is no stuff. Writing checks doesn't fix these basic problems or meaningfully promote economic growth. All it does is move money from one place in the economy to another. Number two. These checks are badly targeted and won't go to the needy. Some acknowledge that the $2,000 stimulus checks won't work as stimulus, but argue they are instead a vague form of relief for the economic costs of COVID-19 and government lockdowns. But while it's certainly true that people have been hit hard through this crisis, the proposed aid is badly targeted, both in principle and in practice. In principle, the bill is very clumsy. It bases the income requirements for aid on 2019 data. This is especially unhelpful when you consider that millions of people lost jobs, businesses, and throughout 2020 using pre-pandemic data to determine eligibility for pandemic relief makes zero sense, and it won't give money to the truly needy. But even where people haven't lost their jobs, this scheme still falls short because it fails to recognize people's unique circumstances. For example, does a journalist who works remotely with an uninterrupted stream of income really deserve the same relief as a business owner whose restaurant was shut down for weeks on end? Beyond that, even if the government could target this aid well in principle, recent evidence shows that it fails in practice. We previously covered how more than 1 million stimulus checks were sent to dead people and how random Europeans received stimulus payments despite never having been U.S. citizens. Furthermore, millions of eligible Americans still have yet to receive their original stimulus payment from March. So these structural flaws would merely result in a broad-based relief system that would constitute an unjustified boon for many relatively affluent and unscathed Americans. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget's Mark Goldwyn examined the House Democrats' proposed boost stimulus checks legislation. He reports that a single adult with a $100,000 salary would get $750 courtesy of the U.S. taxpayer, even if their rather sizable income hasn't been disrupted at all. A married couple with three kids with a household income of $200,000 would get $7,500 in taxpayer money. These are just two examples, but it's true, broadly speaking, that these proposals would spray billions of dollars funded by our taxes and debt to well-off people whose employment has not been adversely impacted by COVID-19 lockdowns. This is taxpayer-funded relief for the affluent, plain and simple, and forcing working taxpayers to provide aid to the relatively well-off regardless of need isn't relief. It's unconscionable. Number three, the costs these checks impose would be fundamentally unfair. The second reason that the relief argument for this proposal fails is that it ignores the large and fundamentally unfair costs this policy would impose. The arguments in favor of boosted stimulus checks only focus on the purported positives of the proposal, but the government cannot create resources out of thin air. According to the Wall Street Journal, this proposal would cost taxpayers an additional $463.8 billion. That's roughly $3,230 per federal income taxpayer. This massive expense to fund stimulus checks would largely be added to the national debt, which eventually has to be paid back in the future with interest. There are two ways debt gets paid back. First, the government can increase taxes in the future. Second, they can print money in the future. If they choose the second option, prices will rise and there will be an inflation tax as citizens' savings become less valuable. In either case, the people paying for the stimulus checks will be future generations. Your children and grandchildren will be fronting the bill. That's right. Millions of people who aren't even alive yet will be tasked with working to pay back the Amazon deliveries of some stimulus check receiving citizens who never lost jobs or income. Despite the rhetoric on both the right and the left against Jeff Bezos, politicians from both parties sure seem eager to promise him your grandchildren's paychecks. The takeaway, it might be a winning political message for populist politicians to argue that they fought to give struggling Americans 2000 dollars in relief. But the reality of this proposal is that it would further burden taxpayers without meaningfully improving the economy or providing relief to the truly needy. Alright, so that was the end of that episode of that article. We're gonna go ahead and hop right into the next one from the Mises Institute, another really good one by Ryan McMakin. I, I very much think this is a great one as well, which is why I decided to read this in conjunction with the fee.org article. So let's go ahead and, pu- and get into this. This one was, again, from the Mises Institute, written by Ryan McMakin. It was December 30th, 2020, and the title is Larry Summers Reminds Us That Federal Stimulus Mostly Exists to Help Out Wall Street. Over the past two weeks in Washington, the battle has raged over whether or not the latest so-called stimulus bill should include direct payments to Americans. This would be the second round of direct payments, which were sent out back in April as part of a $2 trillion spending package. The first stimulus checks were $1,200 per individual to $2,400 per married couple, finally jointly plus $500 per child under 17. In mid-December, Congress approved a smaller second payment at $600 per adult and $600 for children, but President Trump, ever the populist, refused to sign off on that deal and instead demanded a larger payment of $2,000. Recognizing by which way the political wind is blowing, the Democrats approved the increase in the House, but the effort was stalled in the Senate under GOP leadership. One would think this issue would be a slam dunk for most allies of the Democratic Party, But the old Wall Street anti-populist wing of the Clinton-Obama access is leading a small revolt against the idea of giving stimulus to anyone but Wall Street bankers and bond brokers. There is, for example, Larry Summers. Summers is a former Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton, a former World Bank technocrat and an advisor to both Obama and Biden. He was also formerly the President of Harvard, where he now teaches. When Summers speaks, it's a safe bet that his opinions well reflect those of the technocracy, Wall Street, and the wealthy elites of America's ruling class. He's also a self-described Keynesian economist, and all this means is that Summers is an enthusiastic supporter of bailouts, easy money, and endless government spending. Whether following the 2008 financial crisis or during the COVID panic of 2020, Summers has supported doling out cheap and free money to Wall Street firms and huge banks in seemingly endless amounts. He has rarely met a corporate bailout he didn't like. But when it comes to giving money directly to taxpayers, well, that's where he draws the line. Summers made this clear in an interview with Bloomberg last week, declaring he's not even sure he's so enthusiastic about the $600 checks. He's definitely not excited about $2,000 checks, which he described as a pretty serious mistake. But, Summers' opposition isn't because he's a deficit hawk or in any way opposed to government spending. No, his opposition is due to the fact that he's afraid giving money directly to the average American instead of his friends on Wall Street would risk a temporary overheat of the economy. Translation, people who aren't billionaire CEOs might spend the money incorrectly. This is not surprising, as it is similar to the position Summers took during the Great Recession. In those days, Summers steadfastly opposed any financial relief for foreclosing homeowners, but at the same time, he supported every bailout of financial firms. Those bailouts, by the way, continue today. While many defenders of bailouts claim the bailout money was distributed merely as loans and was thus paid back by all those wonderful bankers, this ignores some key facts. Investment firms that invested in mortgage-backed securities, MBSs, in the days following the 2008 financial crisis were directly subsidized and bailed out by the Fed, which purchased more than $2 trillion worth of MBS. These assets remain on the Fed's books today, which means MBS investors essentially received free money for what would have quickly become near worthless investments. This was done in order to ensure the prices of these assets did not collapse as they should have. The truth is that when it comes to bailing out Wall Street, those who support bailouts hardly limit themselves to loans. Are ordinary Americans doing fine? Summers further asserts that there is no shortage of demand among Americans. That is, the problem isn't a lack of funds among Americans, but the fact that people aren't permitted to spend because they can't take a flight or go to a restaurant. People have money, he insists. They just can't do much with it. Thus, he concludes, I don't necessarily think that the priority should be on promoting consumer spending beyond where we are now. Many Americans, however, are likely to disagree. Food banks report that demand has greatly intensified since March, especially among workers in the food service industry and among employees at mom-and-pop stores. USA Today reports more than 6 million households missed their rent or mortgage payments in September. Studies also suggest that at least among a segment of the population, i.e. the lower income or unemployed segment, stimulus money is quickly spent on necessities like food and rent and catching up on bills. Summers is right, of course, that some people just sat on their stimulus money. According to a study from Northwestern University, people with more than $3,000 in their checking accounts did not rush out and spend their first round stimulus checks. Other data suggests many people use the money to pay down debts. These higher income stimulus recipients are also likely the driving force behind the fact that the US savings rate is at historic highs right now, which is also true for us as well. You know, we're also, if we use the money at all, and we're kind of sitting on the sidelines to see how the currency gets devalued and how much inflation actually occurs. And when I'm talking about inflation, I'm not referring to prices rising, I am referring to to the printing of money, the increasing in the supply of money that exists in circulation in the economy. That's what I am referring to. Inflation is the increase in the monetary supply. It is not an increase in prices. So there you go. Uh, But anyways, we're, we're waiting to see what happens with that before we go off and spend it towards debt. But I'm pretty certain that uh, we're going to be eyeing paying off a lot of debt and stuff with that. But if we do any, if we do anything with it at all. It might just end up staying in our our bank account. But anyways, either way. But the fact many are hoarding stimulus money only further disproves Summers' analysis. If it is the case that a sizable number of Americans are simply saving their stimulus checks or paying down debt, there's no risk of any short-term overheating of the economy. Both hoarding and paying down debt are deflationary acts. So by Summers' Keynesian standards, it follows that opposing stimulus checks to ordinary people isn't really something we need to worry about after all. Now, I don't mention any of this because I think stimulus checks of any size are a good idea. Bailouts and government stimulus of all types are extremely damaging economically whether directed at billionaires or at mechanics, stimulus payments and programs, especially of the type funded by newly printed money, i.e. inflation, create bubbles and result in wealth destruction. We've examined this countless times here on Mises.org. But it is nonetheless important to note that the mainstream establishment Keynesian view is one closely wedded to the idea that it's billionaires and investment bankers who deserve bailouts and not ordinary people. Despite their rhetoric, by the way, because there's a lot of people out there that will say that, no, we don't want to give money to the rich. We're not giving money to the rich, but in reality, that's exactly what they're doing. They're snakes. They're liars. Don't trust them. Yeah. Moral of the story, right? (laughs) Anyways, people like Summers would have us believe that it's fiscally irresponsible to give money away to regular folks, but printing up $7 trillion in new money in order to buy up government and corporate debt all makes perfect sense. This first started to become undeniably clear in the days following the 2008 financial crisis, but now it's become more apparent than ever. And it must never be forgotten that the severity of the current crisis was made far worse by policies that Summers and his fellows supported. Lockdowns of businesses, stay-at-home orders, and monetary policies that favor wealthy borrowers over middle-class savers. This crisis is largely of their making, but should Summers' victims get a bailout? Well, that's just crazy talk in his view. For people who remain mystified as to how populists like Donald Trump get elected, they need to look much further than this. And that is the end of that article. Look, both of these articles do a very good job at describing the problems behind these stimulus checks. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't received $2,000 per person in stimulus checks. It was definitely more on the $600 range. So if they're intending to do $2,000, that hasn't happened, or at least I didn't receive any. And no, our income level isn't high enough to the point where we wouldn't be getting less money or anything of that nature, just for those of you who are wondering. But the fact of the matter is, look, these stimulus checks are going to be paid one way or the other. They're either going to be paid through higher taxes in the future or an increase in the creation of money, inflation you know, and that's ultimately what's going to be happening. That's how they're going to get paid. So are they really giving anybody stimulus? They're really just stealing money from future generations or from your future income, if you live long enough to see it, so that they can give you the money today. So they're taking consumption from the future and they're bringing it forward right now because it's kind of like debt, right? That's what debt is. Debt is where you're taking consumption that you would have been able to engage in in the future, or investments, or things of that nature, and you're pulling it forward to engage in it today, thereby reducing your consumption, or investments, or savings in the future, because you have to pay the debt off, and you don't have access to that money. The same is true when the government prints money and gives it to you. They are, they're taking future consumption, future investing, future savings, and they're bringing it forward today, because what they're ultimately doing is someone has to pay for all of this money printing, one way or the other. It's either going to be us or our children or grandchildren. That's the truth. So when we're talking about this, they're either going to be they're taking future consumption, future spending, future investments. I've already said this, but I'll just restate it one more time. They're pull they're taking it from the future, they're pulling it to the present, and either we are going to live long enough to see the decline in consumption, savings, and spendings in the future, or it's going to be our children or grandchildren that are going to see that that's that's ultimately what's happening and frankly i don't know whether we're going to see it i mean i'm young i'm i'm in my early 30s right i'm going to be 32 this month uh january 18th is my birthday so yeah i might live to see i mean look i i'm already seeing i've already seen in my 31 years of living on this earth i've already seen monetary devaluation or the value of our dollar falling i've already seen that you it's evident all over. Gas prices, a lot more expensive than what they were when I was in high school. Prices at the grocery stores have been going up. Prices at fast food restaurants, sit down restaurants have been going up. Ladies and gentlemen, the devaluing of the dollar is always occurring. If they start continuing these stimulus checks right now, we're not going to see the devaluation occur. Because most people are struggling so heavily, there's uncertainty because the government is meddling. So as a result, savings are at record highs. So we're not actually seeing the type of, you know, monetary devaluation that people say that we should be seeing, right? I don't call it inflation. I've already explained why. All right. We're not seeing our money becoming devalued. We're not seeing its value fall quite just yet. But once things start getting back to normal, once the sentiment recovers and people start getting out more and more and more, jobs are not on the line anymore, so people who have jobs are going to maintain having jobs, right? Once the damage has ultimately reared its ugly head and it's very clear what's happened, once all of that has occurred and things start to recover because lockdowns are long gone, people get back to normalcy, things will start to appear as though they recover. In reality, things aren't really, I say recovered, uh, think of those as air quotes. It's not really recovery. It's just putting a band-aid on everything. It's not going to recover just like in 2008. We never really recovered from the 2008. Heck, we never really even recovered from the 2000 bust. The fact of the matter is that we haven't recovered from crashes even further back than that. We've just been putting a Band-Aid on it over and over and over again. We've just been printing money, injecting it and, and cir- circulating it into the economy. That's all we've been doing every single time a crisis was was there. That's the truth. And the fact of the matter is that it's been going on before I was born. It's been going on before many of you were born. The money printing has been going on for a long time now. And in reality... It will continue to go on, but they're going to have to continue to engage in more and more money printing every single time. The amount of money printing that they are engaging in today is a lot more than they were engaging in 2008. And like Ryan McMakin stated, much of the money printing that they engaged in 2008 never really stopped, continues to go on to this day. Maybe they stopped quantitative easing, quote unquote, but um, in reality, they started it right back up not that long ago. And it's going to get to a point where they can't stop it. It has to be ongoing, indefinitely. And theoretically, at least, if that money starts circulating in the economy through everyday people, we're going to see a lot more severe monetary devaluation. We're going to see, start to see our money become more and more heavily devalued at a faster rate than what we've seen. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Ryan McMakin is right. And so was Larry Summers as well. Stimulus money... Largely exists for the rich and the wealthy, the bankers, the you know big corporation executives, the oligarchy, right? Corporations in bed with government, corporations becoming the arm of the government. They kind of are hand in hand, you know, I mean, when the government's giving them money, buying stocks, bonds, can we really say we have a free economy? We do not. Corporate socialism wealth redistribution. These companies are so big, many of them should have died years ago, long ago. They're being subsidized to stay alive. And as a result, they are controlled by the government. Maybe it's a proxy, doesn't matter. They're still controlled by the government. Your fear of big corporations in today's world is probably, uh, is not unfounded. If many of you fear big corporations, it's not an unfounded idea, especially today when you're looking at, I mean, I know for a fact when my wife was at her older job, and again, I'm not going to tell you where she was working, uh, but when she was working at her older job, the one that she lost, around the time of the, all the the wokeness, I hate that term, I hate woke, oh gosh, it strikes a chord with me, around the time of George Floyd Floyd dying and all this kind of garbage that happened, and, you know, whether or not you agree with the incident or not, is uh, the whole George Floyd thing. It's, it, look, that's neither here nor there. We're not going to talk about that on the show here today. That's not the scope. We've already gone down many rabbit trails. <laughs> Let's not go down more. But around that time, my wife started seeing a huge shift in the company that she was working in. More company meetings had to do with diversity. More company meetings had to do with inclusion. Reading books about diversity and inclusion. Having a chief diversity officer, totally a waste of money. Diversity, in my opinion, is garbage. It is a source of instability, a source of, frankly, it's a source of weakness. It's not a source of strength. Because when you get diversity of culture, you get a lot of people who disagree with each other, can't see eye to eye on it. Now, I'm not saying you can't have a peaceful society with that, but it is not a source of strength, ladies and gentlemen. It just isn't. A culturally homogenous nation, that is a source of strength. People who generally agree with each other. Unfortunately, when you have cultural diversity, it creates a lot of instability. It creates a lot of fighting, a lot of tension. It doesn't provide a lot of good things. Now, if we all, you can have people from all of these diverse backgrounds and you can have them come in together and mold together into one culturally homogenous nation. That's fine. That works fairly well. And in generally speaking, when you see a lot of diversity in a nation, you see a lot of prosperity and peacefulness. That's largely kind of what happened. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, if you're from India, you shouldn't be allowed to celebrate your Indian roots, and if you believe in Hinduism, you shouldn't be allowed to, to practice it. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm trying to say that that's a different culture from what other cultures that exist in America today. Christians, Westerners, Muslims, Buddhists, whatever, religious, non-religious, and They clash they clash and that, that that's not a source of strength that is a source of weakness that is a source of instability that is the characteristic of an easily conquerable society a society that isn't strong and homogenous that society that gets conquered because you can play the, to the divide you can further divide people right america is more divided than it has probably ever been some people might say that the division is, is, uh, has been seen before, but seriously, America is more divided and is more prone to division now than it has ever been. This is due to the cultural, you know, uh, diversity that we have in this nation. I'm not just saying about foreigners, too, even with people who grew up in the nation. I mean, my culture that I subscribe to, you know, is different from the atheist. My culture that I subscribe to is very different from other Americans, the American culture is divided. We've lost our culture in many ways. It's gone. So I'm not just trying to point fingers and blame uh, immigrants. I'm not blaming the immigrants. I'm just saying that America's culture is divided and lost. And when you bring in other cultures from around the world, it, it just increases that instability. It just increases that tension. Okay, I think tolerance is incredibly important, but we're losing that battle, too. People are becoming intolerant in order for a society to maintain being peaceful and prosperous. You know, in a culturally diverse country, society, tolerance is absolutely needed. Tolerance is not something that we're having today. Tolerance is going out the window. That's a problem. That's an absolute problem. So that being said, ladies and gentlemen, look, I mean, even corporations are becoming the arms of the government. Even corporations are now promoting these ideologies that we are seeing. And a lot of this is because many of the individuals that work at these corporations, they were effectively indoctrinated from a very early age through the education system, through the media, movies, TV shows. You know, it comes from there. I mean, this ideology, it comes from the education system. It comes from the movies, the the TV shows that we allow to basically invade our minds. If we are built to, and we are taught from day one, that we need to defend ourselves and to protect our minds against this, and that's what we do. I, I certainly was. I wasn't indoctrinated. I was homeschooled. And that doesn't mean homeschooling by letting the the, the, the public school system into your house, letting your kids be educated by computers, but still by the the, the government-controlled schools. No, 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 no. Homeschooling means you teach your children. That's what homeschooling is. You teach your children. Because just like nobody really cares about you when we're talking about your finance and we talk about your money, the same is also true about your education. Nobody really cares about you or your children. Nobody really does. It's just a job to them. They don't really care. Some people are passionate about it, but they don't question the system. They don't question what they have to teach. They just teach it. It's a job. They don't have a problem with it. Political correctness, socialism, it's all all really popular. It's in vogue today. If your kids are in public school, ladies and gentlemen, I don't mean to be offensive here, okay, but I'm not going to be apologetic about it either. If your kids are in public school, their minds are being controlled and they're being taught by someone other than you. And therefore, whatever their beliefs are, whatever their opinions are, are going into your kids. And if that doesn't scare you, there's something wrong with you. That should absolutely concern you. Your kids, your children's mind, I mean, we always wonder why our kids are growing up and they're becoming very left-leaning, anti-Christian, anti-religion, and they're becoming very, gosh, just horribly poor-behaved, ill-mannered, and quite frankly, incredibly defiant individuals. What's happening? The education is. A lot of it is that parents are not disciplining their kids. So they're becoming entitled. Entitled they are getting everything they want. They're not experiencing the realities of the world, the pain of the world. They're overly protected, things of this nature. They're not learning how to be tolerant because they're not being taught to be tolerant from day one. They're not learning how to be respectful and kind, and, and they're not learning how to be non-rebellious because they're not taught to not be that way from day one. And then the indoctrination comes into play. The indoctrination teaches you that what your parents believe of the old world is is wrong and that you need to believe something different. You shouldn't believe your parents. The indoctrination is trying to sever the children from the parents in terms of the minds, in, try, in terms of the culture. It's trying to sever that. When you send your kids to public school, whether that's elementary school, whether it's middle school, whether it's college, you're opening up your child's mind to somebody else. And, and, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. Your, your children's mind are being opened up in other ways too. If they got a cell phone, they're on YouTube, they're on Facebook, Twitter, their minds are already exposed and they're already being indoctrinated from day one because all the other it, stupid idiots who got indoctrinated beforehand, guess what? They're indoctrinating on the social media platforms as well. They're indoctrinating elsewhere too. The fact of the matter is that if you don't like your kids turning out that way, turning into socialist, communist, self-entitled brats, effectively, if, that, if you don't like that, then you need to consider what you're doing because it's your fault as a parent. It really is your fault. I, I, that's a hard message to have. And that'll offend many people. I get that. But you know what? It has to be said. And sometimes the things that have to be said are going to offend people. If you're here listening to me today, I hope that you agree with me. If you're highly offended, you're, you're angry, you don't want to listen to me anymore, fine. Go listen somewhere else. This wasn't the place for you in the first place. Clearly, your sensibilities are far too easily hurt to be here. Look, I'm going to tell it how I truly feel because frankly, I don't feel like I get to, to speak my mind in real life. I have to walk on eggshells around family members, you know, but you know, in laws, all kinds of stuff. This is where I come to tell you how I truly feel, and even then, I don't cover every single topic. How can I? I only have a certain limit of time. I try to keep every episode into the hour, into about an hour, a little over an hour, and we're already over an hour. But look, the fact of the matter is, is that if you are allowing your child's mind to be influenced, if, if you're sending your kids to school somewhere else, you need to be aware of what who their teacher is. You need to be aware, aware of what they're teaching your kids. Odds are, if you're a conservative libertarian, it's probably not in your favor. While they might be teaching kind of apolitical topics, I guarantee you a narrative is mixed into those apolitical topics like math, science. There's a lot of stuff like that going on. Teachers who are wholeheartedly gung-ho for all this stuff, teachers who have been indoctrinated from their early days, are now integrating that stuff into the into the education. Now, this isn't happening with every single teacher and stuff. I worked in the school systems, okay? It was on the daycare side, but I still got to see what the kids were working on, and I actually did get to go and see what the kids were being taught, because I was an early childhood education major at one point time in my life. And I actually had to go do observation hours and stuff like that. Now that was years ago, years and years ago. Things are far worse now. Your kids and their minds are at risk. You need to be working your rear end off to fix that. Either you get a tutor that teaches them just the subjects and that you're aware 100% with what they're teaching them and you can say, I don't want you teaching them something of that nature. Maybe you get a tutor who's very much uh, you know, conservative, libertarian-leaning type of person. If you're a Christian, maybe they're a Christian as well. Y- you make sure that their ideology is in line with yours. You-, you get a tutor that does that, or you do it yourself. Either way, for many of you, that's not going to be the way you've set up your life. So you need to change it. You need to change the way you set up your life. You need to take control of the source of your income. You need to, you know, earn more money so that you can give them a better education. Otherwise, don't complain when your child comes out and he doesn't or he or she no longer believes what you say, is defiant against you, entitled, no longer believes the faith that you taught them if you were coming from this from a Christian perspective. Don't be surprised. And frankly, it was your fault. As a parent, it was a failure on your part. I'm not saying it's 100% your fault, but you know, you do share some blame in that. You can't deny that. When we have children, it is our responsibility to educate them. No one else's. No one else's. I'm going to say that one more time. When you have children, it is your responsibility to educate your children, not a teacher, not a professor. It is your responsibility. You seek out the education that matches with your ideology, that matches with your beliefs, your job to do the research, your job to do the work, your job to educate your children, to become adults, and to ultimately become well-educated individuals. That's your responsibility, not somebody else's. And frankly, there is a war for your child's mind and yours every freaking day. It's on social media, it's on podcasts, movies, TV shows, it's everywhere. If your kids have access to that kind of stuff at a young age, you are setting them up for failure, okay? You need to control the media that you allow them to consume. And if they're old and they're adults now, do your best, but it might be too late. You still need to confront them. You still need to say something. Correct them. You are the only people with the God-given right to say anything. If you choose not to say something, that is your fault and your failure as a parent. If your children grow up in a way that displeases you, it's your fault. It is your God-given right to say anything. If you choose to say nothing, that's on you. Whether they choose to believe it or not, at this point, if you say it and they choose not to believe it, that's on them. At least you tried. But it starts from day one. I don't just let my daughter watch the garbage that's on TV, the stupid kid shows, all of this stuff. It starts from there. Diversity, inclusion, we have to be nice and kind, we have to share all of that garbage. It's in kids' TV shows. It's everywhere. I don't agree with it all, so I'm not letting them consume it. I'm controlling the media that I allow them to watch. I don't just let them watch anything. Now, right now, right now, my daughter is like one years old. She doesn't really watch much at all. So, you know, she hardly watches anything. You know, whatever she watches is maybe for like a minute, maybe five. Uh, she doesn't watch TV much, obviously, and I, I don't let her. The vast majority of the time, I'm she's playing with toys. We're working on trying to get her to walk. We're working on developmental things, right? I mean, so anyways. Look, uh, getting off into a whole other uh, tangent, that could be a whole other podcast, uh, you know, frankly. So, but look, we're at the end of the episode here, ladies and gentlemen. But look, you can't really fix problems, okay? If you try, I'm not saying you shouldn't try. Of course you should try because the one set of problems you may prefer to the other. But just know that there will always be problems. So whether you, if you try to fix a problem, There's always going to be another new set of problems that you created in the attempt to fix it, and hopefully you're going to prefer the new problems over the old. Stimulus checks, same problem, okay? There are those out there who actually think that they're going to help the economy. They're not. They're going to cause a whole set of new issues that are unforeseen circumstances, unintended consequences that's going to happen. But the fact of the matter, if you think that it was meant to help you, you are woefully uninformed. You're very ignorant. It was never meant to help you. It was meant to help the rich and the wealthy who are deeply connected to politics and deeply connected to the system and are part of the oligarchy that rules this nation. Wasn't meant for you. Keep that in mind. And it's only going to hurt you in the long run. It's only going to hurt you, your children, your your grandchildren in the long run. So plan accordingly. Know the risks, right? Say that at the end of every single freaking episode. Know the risks. Plan accordingly. It's very fitting today. And then, yeah, uh, just as a recap with your kids, if you don't like the problems, if you don't like the issues, how your children are turning out, it's your fault. Take responsibility. Look at yourself. You don't like it. Maybe you need to be more involved. You don't like it. Maybe you need to educate them. I, I certainly believe that you should. Your child's education is your responsibility, not somebody else's. If you want to hire somebody else to do it, that's fine, but you need to watch them like a hawk to make sure that they are teaching your child what you want your ch- child to believe. And if you're not going to do that, then don't whine and complain when your child turns out to be an irresponsible, rebellious brat and a mouth breather of society. Because frankly, you need to take responsibility for that. It may not be 100% your fault. You're, there's still a very large percentage that is yours. A very large percentage. Okay, that's a hard message to swallow that's going to offend a lot of people, get you a lot of, get, get, get many of you very, very angry. You know what? That's fine. You needed to hear it. Whether you choose to listen to it, I can't control that. I can't change hearts and minds of individuals unless you are already on the fence. I wasn't trying to change the hearts and minds of individuals. Again, unless you are already in agreement with me or on the fence of that but I'm speaking my mind because I want to. And it's my show, you know? So you don't like it. You know where the door is. No one's pointing a gun at your head, forcing you to listen. You can uh, go listen to something else. You know, if you don't, if you're, if you're defended, it's not for you. This is not for you. You don't like my message. My message is not for you. Simply put, you got a problem with anything I'm saying, then my show is not for you. Or at least that if you uh, disagree with me on one point, but you agree that, well, maybe that message wasn't for you then. Okay? So anyways, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I thought this was a great episode today. If you did as well, make sure to like, subscribe, and also, if you really liked it, make sure to share it. Make sure to help me get this message of financial freedom, help me to spread this message of personal empowerment and controlling your own destiny, which is ultimately what we talk about a lot on the show. If you enjoy that, make sure to spread the message, make sure to get out there, make sure to share the show and help me grow this message to as many people as we can get to listen. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to help support the show financially, you can donate to the show as well. It's a great way. Or you can become a supporting listener and gain access to the Liberty Informant and the Matthew Spazidis Elite Group. So that said, if you'll do all that for me, I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.